Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 37 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we're grappling with the question, why couldn't the disciples cast out a demon, but Jesus could? I do want to open up with a shout out to my old friend, Courtney Johnson of Alabama, who has asked a most excellent question about healing based on yesterday's Mark 8 passage. Now, the way that Courtney asked that question is he went on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. It's BibleReadingPodcast.com. And he left a comment. And so I got that comment, which was a question, and I've added it to the show notes for tomorrow's episode number 38. Unfortunately, it's a pretty hard question, so I might have to phone a friend in. I sure hope Dr. Wayne Grudem is not still sore at me for that time that I rolled his yard a few years ago. In addition to asking you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, I also would like to uh, encourage you to leave a review. The best place to leave a review is on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Having reviews there sort of helps us reach people, and it's really, really cool. Now, this show gets a fair amount of listens in Australia and Ireland and the United Kingdom, and I just want to offer up a, a little bit to sweeten the pot there. If one of you guys in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, or Ireland, or Northern Ireland, or Wales, or Scotland, if any of you wants to leave a review on iTunes... I'll see it, and I'll be happy to send you a fairly small Amazon gift card. All you got to do is send me your email address. Let me know that you've done that. Today's big question is a heavy theological one, and it is, is it wrong to bribe people to give you a review on a Christian podcast? Well, that's an excellent question, and I would say the answer is no. Of course it's not wrong. Now let's get into our passages. Today's passages are, with one exception, thick and meaty in the sense that they are absolutely loaded with important Bible doctrines, edifying biblical truths, and fantastic passages. Unfortunately, Eliphaz's advice in Job chapter 5 is an absolute clunker. We read it yesterday, we're reading it today, and we have to read it again tomorrow. And the thing is, the value of Job 3 through 5 is not in the fact that it is proclaiming truth to us, because, you know, according to God at the end of the book of Job, spoiler alert, Eliphaz was wrong, wrong, wrong. But the value is that this is a clear demonstration of how not to help somebody when they are suffering. Pro tip number one, don't tell people that are suffering that they're suffering because of their own sinfulness? Honestly, that's not your business, and it was most especially not Eliphaz's business in these three chapters, because the Bible is quite clear that Job is not suffering because of his sin. Eliphaz was engaging in conjecture, and he was wrong. Genesis 39 sees Joseph put into an incredibly awkward place through really no fault of his own, But it does demonstrate how God's sovereign hand invisibly guides our lives into the precise place that he wants us to be. Speaking of sovereignty, Romans chapter 9 is beautiful and difficult at the same time. This section of Romans is dealing with a very biblical and very controversial doctrine called predestination, or the P word as I and other ministry colleagues have sometimes referred to it as 
Shout out to Lamar, who noticed the use of the word predestination on the podcast yesterday and texted me about it today. A church that I was pastoring at many, 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 many moons ago lost three families after one Wednesday night Bible study in which I, who was the pastor and leading the Bible study that night, read the P word as I read through Ephesians chapter one. Now, in the uh, in the seats that night, two lovely gentlemen were present at the Bible study. They spoke up eloquently and appropriately during the discussion time. They actually made a pretty convincing theological case for a sort of Calvinist view of predestination. Now, maybe I was cowardly. I don't remember. It was my first year pastoring the church. But during that discussion, I stayed very, very, very neutral. And even with that, we lost three families who were offended that the word predestination was even mentioned that night in a positive light. They left the church. Now, I don't think they actually understood predestination. I don't know why it spooked them. They never told me, but I do know they left the church because of that. And that's a true story. Uh, but I'll say this. I'm happy to say that in 25 plus years of church ministry, that kind of thing has been the exception Actually, a very, very rare exception instead of the rule. So that does raise an interesting question for us on the Bible Reading Podcast that I have not really fully decided yet. Should this podcast tackle deep and thorny theological issues? Now, I don't mind the controversy so much because the fact of the matter is we're going to hit controversy in almost every Bible passage out there. That's fine. The real question is, how deep are we going to go into biblical theology? I don't have an answer yet, but I'm sure one will come soon. Stay tuned. As powerful, deep, and amazing, and beautiful as Romans 9 is, our focus passage for today is actually Mark chapter 9, and our specific question concerns exorcism or the casting out of demons. How is it that Jesus was able to cast the demon out of a young man in Mark 9 and his disciples could not? Now, I want you to understand, this is not an academic question. Jesus is quite clearly disappointed and dismayed at his disciples' inability to cast this demon out and bring relief to this boy. We don't see Jesus displaying this level of frustration with his disciples very much. So I actually think it's very significant, and I think you and I need to learn from it. So let's read that passage and dig in. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Then Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw 
anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead even meant. Then they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw them, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And he asked them, What are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can? Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him up, and he stood up. And after he'd gone to the house, the disciples asked privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. 
Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who will soon afterward speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with one another. So many things we could talk about in that passage. So much depth. But here's our question for the day. Why could the disciples not drive this demon out? The answer that Jesus gives is that this demon can only come out by prayer. And I do note here that some textual variants read prayer and fasting. One of these episodes will talk about textual variants, but today is not that day. The, the answer that Jesus gives here in Mark 9 actually gives us two problems. Problem number one is that nowhere in this episode does Jesus obviously pray. So if the demon can only come out by prayer and Jesus doesn't pray, then how was the demon cast out? Problem number two is that Matthew also tells us this exact story, this exact situation. And in that passage at the end, Jesus says something different. Or does he? Let's read it. Matthew 17, verse 14. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and from that moment the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached privately and said, Why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For I truly tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Again, that's Matthew 17, verse 14 through 20. On the surface, we seem to have a contradiction here. Oh dear. Matthew and Mark are both obviously telling us about the exact same situation, and yet Jesus gives one key in the Matthew passage and a different key in the Mark passage. Uh Uh-oh, what gives? And the answer is that Jesus is essentially saying the same thing in both episodes. And it's also quite likely that Jesus said both of these things exactly, 
and that Mark recorded one facet of what Jesus was saying, and Matthew recorded another facet of what Jesus was saying. And honestly, that's precisely how eyewitness testimony works. One observer would see one thing, another, another. And uh, I'm not sure Mark was here in this instance, but he did get his information from Peter. And so Peter would have seen this and Matthew would have seen this. And it's completely unsurprising at all that they would have seen and emphasized different parts of this story. So how is it that Jesus could be saying the same thing in both passages? In Mark, he tells us that the key to casting these kind of demons out is prayer. And in Matthew, he says it's faith. Well, I believe the answer to the riddle is found in Luke chapter 18, which reads, Now Jesus told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people, and a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now that parable, Luke 18, 1-8, is about the importance of persistence in prayer, a message that Jesus repeats multiple times in several different, different ways. Look how Jesus ends the parable, however. It's a parable about praying persistently, but his final question is about faith. Specifically, his question is like this, when I come back, will I find faith on the earth? He's saying that the key to praying effectively is to pray with persistence and not give up. Will he see this kind of faith, that is faith that is manifested in a life of persistent and prevailing prayer when he returns to earth? Now, Apply that lesson back to our two problems with Mark 9, and we will see that it answers both of them quite well. There is no contradiction between Jesus' answer to the disciples in Mark 9 and Mark 17. The only thing that casts the demon out is the kind of faith that manifests itself in a lifestyle of persistent prayer. Jesus is not telling his disciples that they should have stopped and prayed for the boy in the moment. This is not the source of his disappointment. His disappointment lies in the fact that they themselves have not been cultivating a lifestyle of persistent and prevailing prayer that would build up the kind of faith and authority that would have been able to cast the demon out. They were followers of Jesus with impotent prayer lives, and therefore they were little faiths. This is a state that Jesus was fairly constantly frustrated with them about. Matthew eight twenty six. Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Matthew sixteen eight. Aware of this, Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Luke twelve twenty eight. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Now, what about us? 
When Jesus returns, will he find you and I living a life of prevailing faith because of our persistent prayer lives, or will he also be sighing at us for our lack of power and lack of faith, which is directly traced to our lack of a persevering prayer life? In the 1800s, Pastor Charles Spurgeon uttered a lament about this very thing over his city of London, England, knowing that they would see revival if they would only take hold of Jesus' promise in Luke 18. May this, what I'm about to read, awaken us, quicken us, and spur us on to a lifestyle of prevailing and powerful prayer. May we not be of those of little faith, but of those who overcame. Here's what Spurgeon said. A city of three million, not wholly given to idolatry, but still very much given to sin, and we ourselves are so weak in the midst of it. If we Christians could but realize this invitation and then take hold upon the omnipotent arm of God and by an overcoming faith such as only God could give to any one of us, believe it possible for the Lord Jesus to save this city and then go forward boldly expecting him to do it, we might see more than we have ever seen. And now, what if I prophesy that we will see it? What if I say that if God will but stir up his people everywhere for prayer, he will do a work in our day that shall make the ears of him that hears it to tingle, not with horror, but with joy. He will yet let the world know that there is a God in Israel. Truly that which hinders us is our lack of faith. For if the Son of Man should return to us, would he find faith on the earth? O unbelieving church, O thankless generation, you are not restricted in God. You are not restricted in your own self. And if you could but believe him and so prove him by your faith, he would again open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing such that you would not have enough room to receive it. Amen, and let it be said of us. Genesis chapter 39, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guards brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed this Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to the master's wife, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? 
Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now, one day, he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, Sleep with me! But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When he saw that he had left his garment with her and run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me, but when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, These are the things your slave did to me. He was furious and had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. Job chapter 5, verse 1. And again, do remember, these are the words of Eliphaz, and Eliphaz is rebuked for what he says by God at the end of the book of Job. So we don't take these next few verses as life advice or wisdom. Call out, will anyone answer you? Which of the holy ones will you turn to? For anger kills a fool, and jealousy slays the gullible. I have seen a fool taking root, but I immediately pronounced a curse on his home. His children are far from safety. They are crushed at the city gate, with no one to rescue them. The hungry consume his harvest, even taking it out of the thorns. The thirsty pant for his children's wealth. For distress does not grow out of the soil, and trouble does not sprout from the ground. But humans are born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. However, if I were you, I would appeal to God and would present my case to him. He does great in unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain to the earth and sends water to the fields. He sets the lowly on high and mourners are lifted to safety. He frustrates the schemes of the crafty so that they achieve no success. He traps the wise in their craftiness so that the plans of the deceptive are quickly brought to an end. They encounter darkness by day and they grope at noon as if it were night. He saves the needy from their sharp words and from the clutches of the powerful so the poor have hope and an injustice shuts its mouth. See how happy is the person whom God corrects, so do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also bandages, he strikes, but his hands also heal. He will rescue you from six calamities, no harm will touch you in seven. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in battle from the power of the sword. You will be safe from slander, and not fear destruction when it comes. You will laugh at destruction and hunger, and not fear the land's wild creatures. For 
you will have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure, and nothing will be missing when you inspect your home. You will also know that your offspring will be many, and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will approach the grave in full vigor, as a stack of sheaves is gathered in its season. We have investigated this, and it is true. Hear it, and understand it for yourself. Now, you might notice I read that in a bit of a mocking voice. And again, it's because God rebukes Eliphaz. He sounds so self-assured. He sounds so right. He sounds like the kind of advice and uh, truth, quote, truth, you might get from people on social media that are so confident in what they're saying and so confident in their speaking for God. But Eliphaz missed it. Paul did not, though. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came the Christ, who is God all over all, praised forever. Amen. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's descendant, God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac, for through her sons had not yet been born yet, though her sons had not yet been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob but I have hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory, on us, the ones he called? 
he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over, and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Praise be to God for the glorious riches that come from his word. May you be encouraged. May you be built up and edified in Jesus' name. Godspeed to you.